Hi, welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate, Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. How are you doing today, Tom? I'm doing well, Dennis, yourself. I'm good. 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 Yeah. 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 Doing all right? It's been, you've been busy, huh? Have I been busy? I've been a little busy, yeah. Good busy, though, you know. Doing a lot of stuff at church. ministry. Yeah. There you go. Doing some writing, doing some preaching, doing some preparation for some, you know, adult faith formation things this year. Okay. Yeah. I drew the short straw to give a little presentation on purgatory, which is, you know, just such a burning theme in today's day and age. But, you know, it's a reality within our church, and we have teachings on it, and people want to know. So we kind of feed them a little bit from 1252 or something, the Council of Lions, and we'll bring it up to date and say, (laughs) maybe introduce some of the the, uh, mystics, you know, who who talk about the the baby Jesus inside us, where do we find God, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of interesting things. Part of my interesting week was, and you've never heard these words before, part of my interesting week was the National Bishops' Conference meeting. You know, not exactly known as exciting events, generally speaking, but this time was a good day for the home team, Tom. How was that? Our boy, our founder, (laughs) the servant of God, Father Isaac Thomas Hecker, the founder of the Paulist Fathers and all things Paulist, the Paulist Associates and the Paulist Affiliate Deacons and all that good stuff and all the good works they do, that guy, just the bishops as a group endorsed for sainthood. And that's really? part of the yeah. the process yeah. of becoming a canonized saint. The next step. So, yeah. yeah. So that was big, overwhelming, overwhelming. Yeah, it was voted on and approved by pretty much yep. everyone, huh? Everyone, yep. Sent to Rome saying, Yep, this is our guy too. We like Okay, this guy. so what's next, right? I guess you, we I guess we gotta do a little more research into his writings or whatever yeah. and then waiting for those miracles that are required to move up to the status yeah, of canon really. as saint. But of course he's a saint for us already. We already know he's a saint, <laughs> you know. You know, we've been They're we've gonna been, make it official. Yeah, to make it official. Yeah. That well, that way, more people will know about it, which is what saints do. You know, I mean, they're yeah, yeah. they're examples for us. And and again, I have found so much in the the, the life and spirituality of this man, and how he a very American approach to spirituality, very generous and broad and free and open, and you know all 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 the good things about the United States at its best you know, are in his approach to the Catholic faith. And I've, I've found it very life-giving. So hopefully that would, you know, if he was canonized, his teachings would become more known sure. more widely yeah. and other people could benefit from it. Oh, I mean, he's, he's in heaven. I have, I have no doubt he's in heaven. I don't oh. think being canonized is probably going to do much for him personally, but yeah. for the rest of us. Move up, move up in stature. Yeah. But again, his interest to me was always the seeing the vision of America as a place where the Catholic faith would take root because of our freedom, because the way we had our founding fathers and principles. And uh, that was very visionary, 100 years ahead of his time, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. But, I mean, he was a prophet. And the people that, and people thought the craziest thing they ever heard, the idea of separation of church and state's a good really, thing. Really, yeah. Are you kidding me? And of course, it is. You look at it now, 100 years later. You got a lot of churches being supported in Europe by government that there's nobody in, yeah, a tourist. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a health that's engendered by saying, no, no, you got to pass the plate and you got to be providing something that people want. You know, yeah. and so I think that uh, people thought he was crazy. And of course, the idea that democracy could go with faith 100 sure. years ago yeah. was, I mean, he was literally a prophet. And uh, yeah, so great man. And deserves all the accolades he gets. So I was very, I was very touched. I was very happy, personally. Yeah. And he was big on the whole idea of personal relationship with God. That I think the Holy Spirit, the whole relationship of well, God is not out there. Very intimate, very dynamic in his life as he had to discern the future and relied on that Holy Spirit sure. and in his guidance. So I think he has a lot to say for us today. Yeah. And he did it in the 19th century. I mean, yeah. the old people listening to this podcast 
who grew up in the tail end of the 19th century, otherwise known as the late 50s and early 60s, remember what Catholicism was like, with all the externals and all. God was very much out there, and you had to do stuff. And, you know, and this idea of the, the power of the Holy Spirit, so even more so under the same regime of the, the long 19th century, as historians call it, Hecker, in the midst of it, was talking crazy talk yeah. that Vatican Council said, oh, yeah, no, that's that's what we're talking about. But that was 100 years later. Yeah. So, yeah, he was literally 100 years ahead of his time yeah. and, you know, in many places still is. But but even uh, more so, I think, with his his thoughts on division and overcoming division, I mean, how, how timely is that for us today with the polarization that we see, the toxic, toxicity going on? But he was one of, of unity and brotherhood. So... It, it's not bad. It's good timing, really, to come up because they think it's perfect with what we see going on around us. Uh, right, and he had principles. his spiritual approach. The, the the thing about him that people don't appreciate yet is that he basically went back to the early Christian spirituality and basically said, "Get the Holy Spirit." Okay, I'm mm. baptized. Yep, check. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Oh, how do I do that? Learn how to do that. Okay. And then do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. That's it. And he kept you know it I mean? pretty and simple like, and, so if, and yeah. design. Yeah. But if you but it's not saying you all gotta be Franciscans, you all gotta be yeah. this, you gotta pray the rosary, you gotta it's like, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit will give that to you. And we should expect and encourage in the unity you were talking about of the Holy Spirit. And you see this in the Paulist. Then you do whatever that person with the Holy Spirit gives you. If the Holy Spirit gives you a Franciscan spirituality or a love for the rosary, and another guy over here, he's speaking in tongues, great. There you, know, you go. One yeah. size does not yeah. fit all. Correct. You don't have to. It's not a cramped conformity. It is a broad, wide, hey, the Holy Spirit knows what they're doing. And so he has a formula, actually for the unity you're talking about without taking away with being very respectful of our differences as individuals. It's, Correct. I mean, I think it's very empowering. Well, I think that's, again, lesson for today, how we can be united in our differences. And, uh, you know, we've, we've come to the point of vilifying somebody who has a different opinion. I mean, we're just living in a crazy world that uh, one has to ask anybody who's a serious thinker looking at life, well, how do we, how do we resolve this? How do we get to a, a settlement? Is it going to be the yeah. OK Corral, 10 feet? You know, pistols yeah. at 10 feet, or are we going to learn to <laughs> live in the modern age and, and learn to respect that? <laughs> right? Yeah. Toxic tribalism. <laughs> right. But, you know, if we're, and, and it's tough to see in churches because our whole understanding is that we believe that the, we are made in the image and likeness of God. So it just doesn't reconcile as to the way we're doing things right now versus what we profess we believe. So. Yeah, well, churches are the worst. You talk to anyone who does mediation, negotiation, like for organizations, they'll tell mm. you religious people are the worst because whatever position they have, they think that's that's the position of God. And so the other side, A, is evil, and B, I'm not free to negotiate God's truth with the other side. Whereas yeah, yeah. then you put that next to Hecker who's saying, listen, we're all going to be individuals, and that's the way God wants it. That's the way he made you, and it's let everybody do their own thing, you know, they're all good, you it's know, all within, good. within the church, you know, whether whatever kind of approach you have to God that is loving and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit binds us together. Yeah. We don't need to say, no, you got to be like me. No, you got to be like Jesus. You don't got to be like me. And certainly not you know, like that's you. tough for our egos, you know, that. That's that's the battle we fight. Well, but again, is it, is it my uh, ego great or news. is it God? Are they different or are they the same thing? Because, you know, God doesn't like the music in church that I don't like. You know that, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. But, that's no, great. it is good news that we're moving forward with the canonization of a great man and someone you and I and so many others follow. And it would be good for him and the world to start to, to see what he was teaching. And maybe, again, with the guidance of the Spirit, let's see where this leads. We should get a guest. I got a request the other day from someone on the Internet who saw the hacker thing. And he said he wanted a show from us on on Hacker, so we should get you know some a historian or someone who yeah, really knows really. Hacker well to especially in the light of what's stuff. going on now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who's our guest, Tom? Who's our guest? Well, today we have the president of Jesuit Refugee Services, Joan Rosenhauer. She is a person who has uh, a lot of insight into what is going on in our world, 
what we see on the 6.30 news when we turn on our TVs. So without ado, let us welcome Joan Rosenhaupt. So today we are happy to have Joan Rosenhauer join us on Deacon's Pod. Welcome, Joan, to our little gathering this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Yes, appreciative of your taking the time to, to just join us today. Joan is the Executive Director of Jesuit Refugee Services slash USA. In this role, Joan leads the organization's efforts in the U.S. to fulfill its mission, which is to accompany, serve, and advocate for refugees and displaced people in over 58 countries around the world. Joan is a former board member of the organization and has spent most of her career advocating for social justice and mobilizing the U.S. Catholic community to do the same. As an executive vice president of Catholic Relief Services, Joan led the organization's outreach, marketing, and communications, helping those in the United States respond to critical needs around the world. Prior to joining CRS, Joan spent 16 years with the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, where she most recently served as the Associate Director of the Department of Justice, Peace, and Human Development. Earlier, Joan held a variety of positions, including Special Projects Coordinator and Outreach Coordinator for the USCCB's Department of Social Development and World Peace. Joan has a bachelor's degree in social work from the University of Iowa, and a master's degree in public policy management from the University of Maryland. She has been awarded honorary doctorates from Dominican College and St. Ambrose College. Joan hails from Chicago and is the 2009 recipient of the Harry A. Fagan Award from the Roundtable Association of Diocesan School Social Action Directors. Joan attends St. Casimir Parish in Baltimore. So welcome, Joan. I have to get some oxygen here. It's, you've been <laughs> What have champion. you done with your life, Casey? <laughs> Come on. I'm saving that for the obituary, the yeah, three right. lines that might be there. <laughs> I think I just had a lot of years to do things, so oh, <laughs> it's did, a statement about that. <laughs> you've done good. You've it's done tough good. work. CRS has been my charity of choice for a long time, and I just marvel at the work that they do. So I'm looking Absolutely. forward to what yeah. you have seen and where you see us going and how things right. look from JRS. So, you know, I was just wondering, your mission statement directs you to accompany, serve, and advocate for refugees and displaced people around the world in over 58 countries. And right. as a director of JRS, U.S., but does that mean you have the responsibility for those 58 countries? Are you, how does that organization not, work? No, not, and certainly not single-handedly. We have an international office in Rome, and we have, I guess it's now nine regional offices around the world, of which I am the leader of one in the U.S. and in North America. JRS USA also plays a kind of global role because we help to mobilize people in the U.S. to support forcibly displaced people around the world. And so that leads us to be working directly with many of our colleagues in many of the regions and in some of the most difficult circumstances around the world. It's one thing I'd like to just point out is that there is a terrific culture of philanthropy in the U.S. that really doesn't exist in other countries around the world. So the role of people in the U.S. who are generous, who are kind, who want to support people who have faced persecution and violence and war and have fled, you know, and imagine how stressed you must be to make the choice. The best thing you can do is to leave everything you have and go somewhere where you have no idea what the future is going to involve. You know, the people who are willing to help folks in that situation are really wonderful people. And we have so many in the U.S. who do that, that it's worth lifting up how charitable people are here in the U.S. The Catholic Church, I think, is listed by the IRS as giving $178 billion a year, different charities that we have. Well, huge amount of money. And yet, so inadequate for the needs that are out there. So generosity is part of the theme that we have going for us. But look at the numbers. How many refugees are there today? There's hundreds of millions of refugees and displaced people. Yes, exactly. The most recent number is it's over 100 million forcibly displaced people in the world. And I heard a prediction from the UN that 
during 2023, the number would go up to 117 million. If it was a country, if that population was one country, it would be about the 15th largest country in the world out of around 230 countries in the world. So it's a huge segment of the population of the world. Of course, they're spread all over, but most of the people who flee their homes are then housed in low-income or middle-income countries. Most of them never get resettled. In fact, many people don't realize that the average length of time that a person is displaced now around the world is between 15 and 20 years. So part of the challenge for JRS is to figure out how do we help people in that reality that they are going to be in an urban settlement, they're going to be in a refugee camp for 15 or 20 years. Children are going to grow up there. People are going to have to live their lives there. How can we make that as human a circumstance as possible? Does that include environmental refugees at this point? That's the total number of forcibly displaced people for all reasons. But the projection is really significant that the number of people who are going to be displaced because of climate change is going to grow dramatically. I saw something recently that a study that suggested that 1.2 billion people could be displaced globally by 2050 due to climate change and natural disasters. So that is a huge and growing problem. I saw something on Indonesia at the high risk now with the rising tides and water, ocean levels. So, yeah. And and what do you do? A friend of my father's, my family, uh, was in the World War II and he was in Tarawa. And it's my understanding, I looked up a couple a while ago, that whole nation, that whole island is looking Mm -hmm. to be resettled because it's now almost, it looks like a barbell. There's only a narrow strip between the two volcano margins mountains that are there. It's just an amazing thing where they're trying to find people to take them. Nobody's saying, hey, send you 100,000 people over to us. You know? Yes, exactly. The Pacific Island nations are facing real challenges and the world is not really stepping up to help. Uh-huh. What do you sense is the sensitivity of people? I remember back in the day of, oh, when I was growing up as a kid, I remember Walter Cronkite, you know, a great narrator, a news commentator, and I remember one day he took his glasses off and he looked at the TV, similar to the Vietnam story. And he talked about the violence because of the Vietnam War being on TV every night. And he theorized, he said, how are we going to deal with the desensitization that goes on when we see this type of event happening? And that was back in 1973, 74, 75, the Vietnam War. What do you see going on? Are we becoming totally desensitized to the human condition, this trauma, like you say, a generation in a resettlement camp? Well, I think there are a lot of things going on. So one thing that we certainly see is hostility to people who have been forced to flee their homes and they are not always welcome. That's true in the United States. It's true in other parts of the world. And it's really heartbreaking because we have a chance to interact very closely. Our commitment to accompaniment means that we make a real effort to get to know people who are forcibly displaced, who are asylum seekers, who are in different situations of displacement. And I know that they are people just like you and me. They want a decent life. They fear for their children's future. And all they want is to get their children educated and put them on a path to a decent life. And so it's very hard to see how much hostility there is toward forcibly displaced people and a real lack of understanding that they are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and people just like you and me who are trying to help their families. Then I think there is some desensitization because we see so much and it's the constant story that we see on the news, whether it's people crossing the southern border in the U.S. or people displaced in other parts of the world and in refugee camps. And that's a human reaction to pardon ourselves after seeing so much of that. It's something that we're called, and especially I think as Christians, as Catholics, never let us ourselves get hardened to the plight of people who are on the margins, people who are suffering. We are always called to respond to them in light of our commitment to being disciples of Christ. But I also want to say that I see a lot of kindness and generosity. There's kindness among the refugees themselves helping each other. I see a lot of kindness among, you know, people here in the United States who come to us all the time and say, how can we help? And we try to provide them a range of ways to help. But, you know, I don't want to have that goodness overshadowed by 
some of the indifference or even the hostility that we also see. There are a lot of good people in the world who really want to help families who are struggling, you know, more than any of us can probably imagine. And I'm so grateful for them. We had a parish priest down here who's Ukrainian by birth. We came across a family that made it out of Ukraine. And one of our friends was gracious enough to provide some housing for the mother and 15-year-old and a three-year-old. And it's just an incredible story. Like you say, the Ukrainian soldiers knocked on their window and said, get out of here now. And within two hours, she was on the road with her children. She left both. Her husband died several years ago. As bad as it was to have that event happen and make that decision right away is uh, it's tough to get your head around that that's a real condition in today's day and age and when i talk about our desensitization i just look at all the movies coming out and what are they all about they're violent they're shoot them up dystopia it's very hard and i'm so glad to hear that in your mindset joan that a prevailing factor is the gratitude and generosity of people that are willing to help because if you look down the road of what we see, it's pretty negative. You're surrounded by the Jesuit community. How do they help you uh, keep your head straight? I mean, at least you're in a place where you're a refuge for your own spirituality. How, how do you find some hope in that? There's definitely hope in our identity as a Catholic organization, as a Jesuit organization, the support that we get from the Society of Jesus, from the Jesuits. They're very involved. We have a number of Jesuits who are on our staff around the world. and the commitment to accompaniment, I think, comes out of that Jesuit identity, and that's a very strong charism for us, and it really shapes the way we do our work. There's also the process of discernment that really is something that allows us to work together with refugees and with our colleagues and allows us to come to decisions in a really positive and participatory way and with careful you know, consideration and thought on it. So we're very grateful for the support that we get from the Catholic community, from the Jesuit community, but also from others. We have many lovely people who are not Catholic or don't have any connection to the Jesuits, and they support us as well because they understand what a traumatic experience it is to be forced to flee your home, to flee everything you know. And they understand that the future for all of us and the possibility of peace in the future is going to depend on a generation of children who are able to see hope, to who are given some support to manage the trauma they have experienced. And we all need to step up and help. And that is going to benefit everyone, not just the refugees themselves, but everyone in the future. I'd like you to unpack that a little bit for our listeners, because we all know what you're saying, but I don't know that they do, that the accompaniment. Could you say a word or two about what you mean by accompaniment? And what difference that makes? Well, I think it's just the starting point is that these are children of God that we're working with, regardless of their faith tradition. We are called to to treat them in light of their inherent God-given dignity. And so we start not just trying to figure out how many mosquito nets or products or something that we can distribute and tracking how many of those we can distribute, but we start by thinking about how can we engage in a relationship with the people we're working with and then try to help them uh, discern a path that allows them to achieve some of the things that they really have at their at the heart of their goals in life, educating their children, finding a way to support their families. If they can be resettled, that is everyone's goal, but really a tiny fraction of the displaced people will ever be resettled in a place like Canada or the US or Australia or whatever. So really helping them think about and find a path and walk with them on that path to create a dignified life for themselves. I was at a, an event several years ago at Manhattan College, and I was meeting with students who had recently returned from Italy, where they had been visiting a number of organizations serving migrants and refugees arriving in Italy across the Mediterranean. And you may recall that Pope Francis's first trip as Pope was to Lampedusa, Italy, where so many desperate migrants arrive on boats, and sadly, so many don't survive the crossing. But these students talked about the organizations they had visited in Italy who were serving refugees and migrants, and then commented that there was one organization that really stood out for them, and it was a shelter known as Centro Astali. I kind of mangled the Italian there, but and 
what they saw there was this impressive warm relationship between staff and refugees where the program wasn't just distributing food or making sure there was a roof, but that staff had built relationships with the refugees so that they felt that they were being kind of welcomed into almost a family environment. And she was, you know, explaining, the student was explaining this experience and how different this was from what she had seen in some of the other organizations. And what she didn't know was that Centro Astali is the name for JRS Italy. So I had kind of a moment of feeling pretty proud that she saw such a powerful experience among the refugees because of this approach of accompaniment that JRS brings to it. And that's just one example of how that accompaniment plays out. That's exactly it. And this is what Pope Francis is always talking about is accompaniment. It's one of his favorite themes and words and you know, treating the person like a person, not an object that you're going to fix or help or whatever. But it is that relationship. You know, there's an old movie, and I, I can't remember what it is, but it was uh, during the Depression. It was like during the 1930s. And uh, there's a scene in this movie, and because, you know, everybody's, you know, on the street or whatever, and they're in the municipal centers for help, soup kitchen, whatever it was, right? And, you know, they all get all the hats and the clothes from the 1930s. It's an old movie. And it's sitting there, and uh, these guys are, because almost all men, they're in an absolute uproar about their dignity and how they're being treated and disrespected while people are giving them food. You know, it's St. Vincent de Paul's old thing of, we must love the poor very much if they are to forgive us for the food we give them. Right, uh, right. Uh, so in this movie, which is just a secular movie, I mean, it's just, I can't remember what the movie's about, but it was set in that times. So these guys are going, you know, they're getting indignant, they're yelling, they're shouting. And one of the guys jumps up on the tables and says, I'm not taking this anymore. You're not going to treat me like this. Come on, fellas. I'm going over to the Catholic worker. Wow. <laughs> and it was just a throwaway line in the middle of this movie. Yeah. But it was again, Dorothy Day. Yeah. She soon be sainted despite the fact that she never wanted to be, you know, that was that personal, they called it personalist. That was their approach. That was what, where accompaniment lived in the thirties. It was like, no, these are not widgets. These are not clients. These are sisters. These are brothers. What can I do? How can I help you? And they retain their agency. So it's kind of like that. And I think that's a key difference to, you know, why should someone support, Jesuit Relief Services versus, yeah. well, why not just give to this organization or that? But, yeah. um, and when people have been, I would assume, I've never done this kind of work, but when people, I have been a prison chaplain, so I have some, I think I have some insight into this. When people have been dispossessed of everything, <laughs> of their own, of their relationships, of their village, of their culture, their language or whatever, and they're in another completely, you know, another planet as far as they're concerned. It must mean so much to them to be treated with respect and welcome and love. I mean, exactly. I just can't imagine that is not the even more necessary than food in a lot of ways that or whatever immediate relief or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's an important, yeah. I mean, that's an important reason I support JRS myself. So yeah, thank you very much for that. But yes, no, that thanks is you. Yeah. and it's partly looking at how do we define success? And success isn't just the number of meals distributed or the amount of clothing distributed or whatever the program might be that is, you know, accomplished. How many students went through our school? It's also the quality of their experience in that. And is their dignity reaffirmed and supported when they experience us as a Catholic and Jesuit organization? Part of your team are chaplains, right? Don't you have chaplains scattered throughout? Yeah. So, I mean, that says a lot about what What counts and where you put your effort and money? Well, and that particular program is one that we have here in the United States. As I said, we're working in 58 countries around the world and have a variety of programs providing education for students. And of course, what happens is that we start an education program and then not only do the refugees want that education for their children, but the host community wants that education for their children because that's the best education available. But so education programs, livelihood support so they can make money in some ways to support their families. Mental health and psychosocial support is very critical around the world because every person, including every child, has been through a very traumatic experience. And we have to help them learn to cope with that and to manage their own stress 
And we can't just assume that if we give them food and water, they're going to thrive because they have been through so much. And then another priority of ours is advocacy and also reconciliation program, helping people to learn how to rebuild right relationships with the people around them. But the chaplains is a program that we have here in the United States, and we provide chaplains in five detention centers where people are being detained by the U.S. government. And I've recently been trying to visit each of those detention centers. So I've been had a chance to be there with our staff and with the non-citizens who are in the centers. And especially in some of the centers, it's another heartbreaking situation because the people I've met are young men whose families are facing incredible violence. They themselves are facing incredible violence. The pressure to join a gang or be killed, the pressure to have their sister perhaps become what they call a gang wife. So these young men have fled trying to get to the United States and all they want is a chance to seek protection in the United States, say the United States to be safe in the United States and then to work. They just want to come here and work and try to support themselves and try to help their families. And what happens when they're in the detention center is that they are on their way to being deported. And so they fail and they fail their families. And these young men who just, you know, just wanted to try to help themselves and their families are now so demoralized by the fact that they will not be able to do that and they're going to be sent back. And I can't tell you how important the chaplains are to them at that time. And I can't tell you how important the opportunity to practice their faith, to find solace in their God and in practicing their faith. So we help people regardless of their faith tradition. If somebody asks for a Quran, we'll give them a Quran. Lots of people ask for Bibles and rosaries. They love to get the rosaries. But whatever the faith tradition, we try to help them because we know that we have to respect their relationship with God, and we want to give them that support in engaging in that relationship with God at this difficult time for them. And you don't think about, what about this trauma? What did this do to that little girl you're looking at? What did this do to her? About these guys in detention, and Tom and I are both prison chaplains for many years, so (laughs) we know what happens in prison, and we know how difficult the institution can make it for the chaplains to even function. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like, well, there's all kinds of games going on here. It's not an easy thing on any end of this, but we know how essential it is. But people don't think about that. They don't think about welcoming people and making them feel safe and cared for, or they don't think about, you know, the educational piece. Education, we need to feed these people, which we do. But then again, what happens if we drop the ball on a couple million, hundred million people? Uh And they don't get educated for a generation. And then we turn them loose in the world. But I'd like to now ask you to tell us a little bit about what is it that you practically do? Like I give you $100, there's the tsunami in Banda Achi or whatever is the crisis of the day. I give you a hundred bucks. What can, what are you going to do with that? What is your focus? What, how will that play out? I appreciate the question. So we do have a, fund that we call our greatest need fund. And so when people send us money like that, we look at where is the greatest need at this time around the world. And it just depends on, you know, there was an earthquake, as many people may remember, in Syria and Turkey not too long ago. And that was an immediate need. And we were able to use some of those funds that people send to immediately support our programming there and make sure that you know, in the early days, you do have to get shelter and food and water and things like that. But as you said, we always look at the long-term needs of people because we know that there are too many organizations that are there for the emergency and then move on. And we try to stay and help people through, you know, kind of building a life, especially because they are often displaced for 10 or 20 years. So education is critical. Every parent wants their child to get a good education And children can lose years of education when they find themselves in a situation of forced displacement, unless there are groups like JRS who are there trying to set up the education programs and making sure that students have a chance to study. And as you said, if we have children who have lost like hundreds of, you know, 50 million children, because about half of refugees are are children, if we have 50 million children who have not been able to get an education, What is their future? 
And what is really the future for all of us when it's at that scale? So we have to make sure that at every level we're providing education from early childhood to primary school to secondary school. We provide all of that. And then post-secondary, so that we always in a post-secondary program, we will do a market assessment. Even in a refugee camp, there's an economy. So to do an assessment of what kinds of income generating activities can be supported in that context. And then we train people for that because there's no point in giving people a bachelor's degree, a liberal arts degree, when they're going to be in a refugee camp for 20 years, there's nothing they can do with that. We have to train them for things that they can actually do to support their families for a long-term displacement in a camp or in an urban settlement. And one of the challenges that refugees face is that in most countries in the world, they're not allowed to work. They may be able to do what they call volunteer work with a stipend, but it is a real challenge. Now, often they can do more informal kinds of things, including people who are able to sew or people who are able to do plumbing, to do some fixing of a broken sink in someone's home or things like that. So there are things that can be done informally and as volunteers with a stipend, but it's quite limited. But we really focus on what can we train people to do that they're actually going to be able to do something with and not assume that we're preparing them to move to Canada. The one other thing I want to say that is a real focus for our, us on education is inclusive education. So children who have some kind of disability are often the last to get support in education in many displacement situations. And that, so that's something that we really prioritize. And even at the very beginning of the process, if a child is not helped with physical therapy, really from birth, they can lose so much ground before they would even get to the possibility of going to a school that they will never be able to catch up. They'll never even be able to go to school. So we focus on, we have physical therapists that are working in camps and what amazing people. They could be working in, I want colleague who could be working in Nairobi and have a really comfortable, easy life. And he's in a very challenging situation in a camp called Kakama in Northern Kenya. And he's doing physical therapy to make sure that refugee children have the support to try to address their disabilities from the very earliest moments so that they can have some hope of leading a decent life and then going to school. And then we train teachers how to include children with disabilities, mild disabilities in their classroom. So we really focus on how can we help children who have been forced to flee their homes to have as many opportunities for an education, no matter what their abilities are, so that they can build a life and have hope. And getting into school is a real moment of hope for children because as long as they're out of school, what they know is that their life has been disrupted. Their life, the rug was pulled out from under them. If you can quickly get them back into a classroom and kind of leading a decent life, that helps with their mental health as well because it tells them that they have a future and that the world wants to support them in right. building for that future. Right. Okay. So let's say, so you guys are focused on educating the next generation. When you go into the, to a camp situation, and then from there, you do whatever needs to be done to make that possible. Do I have that right? Yes. Like, in other words, you come in and say, listen, of course, the Jesuits' education, you know, okay, it kind of goes together. Let's just say, so the me there's groups that do medical stuff. Then there's groups that do food, emergency uh -huh. shelters, bring the tents, uh -huh. the mosquito netting, this and that. Yep. And then there are the ones that are going to do the, the next step stuff and then the next step stuff and the next because this is a long process like you're talking about 20 years so everybody's everybody has got a different focus a different expertise is that correct all these different groups yes we I okay mean, there's a little bit of overlap but yes sure. generally okay. there's a division of labor in that the way that you're describing okay it. and yeah. what is your division of labor specifically in jesuit refugee services well, it's a little bit different in each country, but our priority program areas are education, as we've been discussing. And so that is often in, in different parts of the world, a, a program that we would have the lead responsibility for. Sometimes refugees can go to public schools, but they need a lot of 
extra support in order to be able to integrate in the school. They can't just drop them into a classroom sure, in sure. a foreign country don't, and whatnot. Yeah, don't so even speak the language. So education is whatever. one area. Another priority area that, as I've mentioned, is mental health and psychosocial support, that we make sure we have both focus programs on that and then weave it into all our other programming so that there's always that kind of attention to how people's mental health and psychological health is doing. And then we also have a particular focus on livelihoods because for the very reason that we've been talking about, if people are displaced for so many years, we have to help them build a life and support their families where they are and can't just prepare them to move to some other part of the world. And then another priority is reconciliation and peace building because of the kind of violence and disruption that people have been through. And also they get dropped into a community that is often very poor itself. And so now there are even more people who are there in the community and with limited resources and things. So helping people to build right relationships with other refugees and with the host community is really critical for there to be peace prevailing in these communities, in these situations. Most refugees are actually in urban areas. They're not in in camps off, you know, isolated somewhere, though many are, you know, but the slightly higher majority are in urban areas. So they do have to interact with their host community quite a bit. What you've described, and I correct me if I'm wrong, it's it sounds like a holistic and unique set of priorities that Jesuit refugee services, not relief services, refugee <laughs> services provides. <laughs> Repetition you is know, good, it, Dennis. Nice. That's good. Yeah. But is it, I mean, it, are there any organizations that you would say are comparable in the work that you do to what you do? Well, I think because we bring the focus on accompaniment and reconciliation and peace building and mental health and psychosocial support with the education. I mean, there are groups who do each of those things. I don't know that there's another group that does that combination. And I think you're right. It really is mutually supportive. And again, our focus for older students, getting them to the point where they are trained once they get secondary school diploma, then to be trained for something that they can actually do that is income generating. You know, there are other groups that do some of that and do livelihoods programs and things. But I think that continuum from preschool education through secondary school and looking at livelihoods and and then complementing that with mental health and psychosocial support and reconciliation and peace building. That is a particular combination, as you said, kind of holistic combination to support people in the long run that JRS brings to it. So Joan is being humble, boys and girls. Let me clarify for this. The answer to my question was, no, this is unique. It's one stop. (laughs) There's no one else. That's right. No one else is doing this kind of stuff, which should really warm your spiritual hearts. All of you out there on the interwebs listening to us around the world. That's a wonderful thing, and it's a, I think it's a, it's a very unique combination. It arises out of the work and the lived experience and discernment of the Jesuits around the world in all these situations. For those of you who don't know, they are the largest order of men in the world, in the Catholic Church, and they do everything. They are all over the globe in every situation. I really think that's a wonderful, wonderful explanation for people, because I would like to highlight JRS and have people be clear of where their money's going and all that. Because one of the things I always recommend to people, because I think almsgiving is something that has fallen by the wayside. It's kind of like a nice extra if you think about doing it or if someone makes you feel guilty enough or whatever. But it really is central to our tradition. And, you know, the scripture that says, almsgiving wipes away sins. You know, I mean, I mean, it's, it, this is important stuff in the teachings of Jesus and everything else. And so one of the things I've suggested in the modern times to people on various occasions when I've been preaching or something is that you've got to be prepared. Yeah. You should do the vetting. You should look up JRS. You should look up mm-hmm. Catholic Relief Services. And you should be satisfy yourself that, okay, my money's being well used. These people are doing it. Both of them stay long after everybody's forgotten yeah. about this. These are long terms. I mean, because the church is probably there in most cases already. Okay. So you've got people on the ground who know the situation. And, you know, you have that ready. So when you're watching the news, 
and you see the earthquake in Syria, before you go, gee, that's too bad, let's, what's for dinner? You remember the baby Jesus, and you say, oh, I got to do something. And then you know where to go. You're not fumbling around, or I'm going to do it tomorrow, and then you forget. Yeah, that's it's right. It's like, yeah. I've got my little tab here on my computer. Before I get up for dinner, you know, send them 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 10 bucks, whatever you can afford, but do something. If everybody just did something, it would be huge make a big difference for those people instead of shrugging your shoulders. So that that's kind of my goal in this, is that, that people know this organization and that they be prepared. But it, it is a wonderful organization. Thank you, Joan. I really. Well, thank you for you your did. enthusiastic support of us in the way we are laying this all out and describing it. I, you know, I, so I was on the board before I was the president of JRS USA, and that was actually when I was with Catholic Relief Services, and I was on the board and then had this opportunity to become the president. But, you know, when before I was the president, it sounded less self-serving for me to talk about what a fabulous organization JRS is. But you know that I love it because I wouldn't have gone from being a board member to being on the staff and being the president if I didn't first know the organization well and then really want to be a part of it in an even deeper way than being on the board because it really is a terrific organization. And I'm just, I feel very blessed to be able to do what I'm doing. Hey, doing God's work. Is there anything yeah, you want to say that we haven't asked you that you think is important that the listeners might want to know about? One is that we have to remember that we believe in a God of abundance. We don't believe there's a zero-sum game. And that if some people get some advantages or have a chance to come into the U.S., that somehow that is to the detriment of the people who are already here. There is room for many people here. And we look at our low unemployment rate and everything. There's plenty of room. We need people to come and take jobs and do things. And so understanding that the people that we encounter at JRS every day at the border in our border program, we have a border program called Caminar Contigo in Juarez and El Paso. And the people we encounter are waiting on the Juarez side in shelter, sometimes for months, because they want to come into the United States through the correct process, and they want a chance to go through the asylum process and to be accepted into the United States and have a chance to work in the United States and have a chance to build their lives and give a decent life to their children in the United States. We also encounter people every day who have been allowed into the United States through our programs or through the U.S. system. And then they're in a shelter in El Paso and on their way somewhere else. And so there's a sense that it's all focused on people who are trying to do things illegally and they're trying to, you know, deal in drugs. We encounter people all the time who are just parents who are trying to find a decent life for their children and they want to do it through the legal systems and they're waiting for months and months in very difficult condition, and they deserve our support, and they deserve to be welcomed here so they can build their life here, they can work, they can contribute to their communities in the U.S. That's all they want to do. They're people just like you and me. I, you know, I've spoken with so many mothers and fathers, and they'll ask me, you know, if you were in the situation I was in in my home country where my daughter was threatened with being taken as a gang wife, if your daughter was being threatened with that, what would you do? And I know I would do exactly what they did. And I would try to get my daughter to a safe place. And that's all they're doing. They want to contribute to the United States. So we have to tell those stories because there's too much discussion. Of course, there are criminals. There are criminals everywhere. So, of course, there are some criminals, you know, at the border and things. But we have to tell the story of the vast majority of people who are decent people fleeing horrible situations, trying to take care of their children and find a safe place to live and work and build a life. I would encourage people to go to our website and not just look at the numbers. And the numbers are very good in terms of a very small percentage that goes to, you know, the administration and management or whatever it's called, fundraising management. But, but also look at the stories of people because these are children of God that we're serving. And you can get lost in kind of the big picture and program areas and all of that. But, you know, I just got back from Thailand and I met a refugee from Pakistan 
who found JRS. His name is Adnan, and he was he worked so hard to learn English. I've never met refugees who are lazy. I truly have not met refugees who are lazy. They want to work. They want to build a new life. His wife is there. He has a very young child. And he worked so hard to learn English that he got so good that we were able to hire him as a teacher of English for other refugees. And again, it's a stipend. It's not a full employment because that's not allowed in Thailand. But, you know, there are individuals like Anand who are worth supporting all over the world that we encounter every day. And we tell their stories on our website. And it's worth learning about some of these human beings, children of God, that we are called who are part of our human family and whom we are called to support as disciples of Christ. And so I hope people will learn about some of those amazing individuals. I see every day that there is so much good in the church and that it is a real gift to be a part of this community of faith and be given the opportunity to be a part of that, the goodness that is being played out and the good people who are part of our church. You know, at the heart of our identity is the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And I think if you want to live that gospel call to love God and love your neighbor, our church can give you wonderful ways to do that. Yeah, I think that's powerful coming from you because of, again, we should probably remind the listeners of all the organizations right up to the Bishop's Conference, if I remember correctly, that Joan has been involved in over many years. So she knows more of what's wrong with this organization than most people. Let's put it that way. And she's still telling you of the joy so I know what Joan's talking about. And Joan's one of the reasons I'm still in the church. <laughs> Joan, is there a JRS Etsy store or something where the goods the people make can be oh. bought or supported? Yeah, it's people? not Etsy, but there's a Makono shop, M-I-K-O-N-O. And you can purchase refugee produced goods there. It's in Nairobi, but there's a website and people can get really beautiful handcrafts that just are lovely to have. I have a bunch of table runners and I have purses and, you know, things that I bought Spell through the Makono shop. Spell it again. M-I-K-O-N-O. Well, and thank you Florida, for doing right? this. Yes, okay, thank you indeed. Thank you. It was really fun. Thank you, nice to meet you. Fun to be with you. Special thanks to El Jefe, Paul Snatchko, and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.